Well, good morning. How many of you say amen till he returns or calls me home? There in the power of Christ I'll stand. What a, what a great modern hymn that is. I was able to meet the person who wrote that hymn, and he considers himself a hymn writer and saw the need for people in our generation to write not just gospel songs, but to write some real hymns. And it's a real blessing. Thank you, Mike Donnelly, for the invitation. It's a real blessing. Thank you, Pastor, for opening church. It's, it's great to see a pastor who loves the doctrine of creation and is not afraid of man and what people are thinking and not worried that people might think that you're an intellectual pygmy or something like that because you believe in the doctrine of creation or that half your congregation might go because... We say we believe this book for the way it is. That's a, that's a rarity, so thank you very much for that. You guys live in some very pretty country. I don't live in Virginia. I don't live in West Virginia. I live way out west near Mount Rushmore. But every time I come here and I drive through these little country roads and I see these villages, they're like villages, little stone villages and things. It's, it's a pleasure to see. And everybody keeps their property just as neat as a button out here. It's just the, the fences and everything is trimmed. It's, it's very, very delightful. Just like the movie, I expect to see James Stewart coming out and at any moment. And uh, Do you know who James Stewart, do you remember what movie I'm referring to? Uh, called Shenandoah. It's a, it's a classic there. Well, I see some young people here, so I need to tell you, how in the world did I get here today? Because I wasn't raised in a Christian home and I didn't even go to church in fact, I, I, I never went to church. And it wasn't because I hated God. It wasn't because I was opposed to God. It's just because I had no regard for God because my parents, who I love very dearly and very good parents, they just never thought it was worth the time to take anybody to church. And all of that changed in my senior year of high school because of, there was a change in the schedule of my classes. Up until my senior year, I really loved one class more than almost anything else. It was called Woodshop. And I don't even know if they teach it anymore in school. But when I was a kid, you know, guys kind of took Woodshop and gals took something called Home Ec, which we called Home Rec and that. And, um, <clears throat> but I was addicted to Woodshop. So even when I didn't have to take it, I took it over lunch hour every, every semester. And then in the last semester of my senior year, canceled devastating to me. So I had to do something that I hadn't done for years, and that was go to lunch. And so I, I had, uh, it was a cafeteria, you have your little tray, and they plop the food on it, and you go to the next station, they plop some more on it. And I looked down at my tray, I realized I haven't really been missing much for all these years. And, um, and then we had a rather large high school, and they sat in tables out in the commons area. So I got out, and I'm in, uh, a young man, and First time in years I'm going to eat lunch, and so what am I looking for? Okay, I'll prime the pump here. I'm a young man, and I'm looking out over the students, and I'm looking for a a girl. There you go. It comes back. Yes, yes, it does. It does. I'm looking for a girl. I'm looking for a girl. Of course, that's what I'm looking for. And I spy a gal right over there and I thought well she looks pretty nice I think I'll go over and sit down next to her so I go over and I sit down and I start talking and joking 
and teasing and joking and teasing and talking. And what's that called? Flirting. flirting. You should say like flirting. Yes, it's called flirting. Flirting. Now, flirting, gals, in case you don't know, I'll let the guy's secret out. Flirting is never a purposeless activity. There's always a goal to the end of the flirting. And the goal is to get the girl to say yes. It doesn't matter what you ask her. You just want her to say yes. And, uh, and so after applying my flirting ways for a couple days, I thought that she had been appropriately flirted. So I called her up on the, on the phone and I, I said, would you, I'm going to date myself for a little bit, would you like to go roller skating with me on Friday night? And uh, there's a purpose to roller skating is because you get to hold hands. And she said... She had just become a Christian only about six months before that. And she went to a Bible church and there, her pastor, her, actually her youth leader, had told her, you should only date Christian guys. But she didn't, she didn't have any tests for Christians. So she thought, well, I'll invite him to church. If he says yes, he's probably a Christian. So she said, well, I'll go roller skating with you if you come to church with me. I said, sure. Not because I was a Christian, but because I thought... Wow, guaranteed second date. And so I, uh, I, I, I mess it up on Friday, I'll rebound on Sunday. And I knew church wasn't any place where they would hurt you, so why not? <laughs> so I went to church and she went to a place called the Berean Fundamental Church. I've never heard of such a thing. What in the world was a Berean anyway? All I knew is there was like Catholics and Protestants. And they, they were a solid Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. They preached the gospel, and it went in one ear and out the other. Didn't, didn't mean anything to me. But I still liked her, so I called her up again, and I said, Would you like to get pizza with me on Friday night? And she said, Yes, I will, if you come to church with me on Sunday. So I picked her up. We got pizza. Had a very nice time. Got in the car, drove home, parked in front of her house, turned off the car, and she looked at me very seriously, and she said, Randy, there's something I need to tell you. And I thought, ah. Oh, Best guy she's ever dated, best time she's ever had, best, just something best. And she looked at me and she said, Randy, you're going to hell. I thought, what in the world is this? How did, where did this come from? I, you know, I've had a bad day before, but I never merited hell. I mean, it was, uh... I said, well, what do you mean I'm going to hell? And she said, well, you're a sinner. And I said, I'm not a, I'm not a sinner. Sinners are in prison. And she said, no, you're a sinner. And I can tell you, I was highly, highly offended. Highly offended that she would call me a sinner. And so I told her every reason why I wasn't a sinner. I obeyed my parents. I obeyed the law. I obeyed my teachers. I worked hard in school. I didn't do drugs, the key word being in all of that, I. And she said, well, you may be pretty good compared to other people, but... And this was kind of a low blow, but, but do you have the righteousness of Christ? Where did, where did that come from? Who's got the righteousness of Christ but Christ? I, I said, no, something like that. And she said, well, you'll need the righteousness of Christ. And I never heard such a thing. And I continued to date her, and this flogging continued date after date after date on that. And... Um, and then for high school graduation, she gave me a Bible <clears throat> in front of all my friends. And she had marked verses in it. 
And by this time, I was reading and studying, and one of the verses says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then she had a verse, a couple verses, pages over, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I didn't understand the gift. And she had a passage that was marked that said, For God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There was this exchange, my sin for his righteousness. Oh, it began to make sense. And by this time I realized I was a sinner. Randy really did think things that he shouldn't be thinking. He said stuff that he shouldn't be saying. He behaved in ways that he shouldn't be, were sinful. And then there was a passage that was marked by the Lord Jesus Christ that said, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. It will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And that verse convicted me because I wanted that life. And I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I am a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins and come into my life and save me. And I can tell you, bang, just like that, born again, changed, literally changed from that moment on to right now, today, a miracle that the Lord did. And it was all because one young girl, one young gal had the courage and the boldness and the love to tell me what I needed to hear. So young people, first, I hope you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as a teenager or even younger, that you are a sinner and you need this Savior. Two, if you have come to Christ, be bold in your witness. Be bold in your witness. You can change a life. You can bring a gospel to somebody who really needs to hear it. And that was me. And that's how I got here today. So, I know about half the audience, maybe even more since half the men folk are out in the hills shooting deer, but um, (laughs) at least half the audience here wondering what in the world ever happened to that gal? Well, I continued to date her after that, and about a year later I asked her, would you like to marry me? And she said, yes. And we got married, and just this year we had our 37th wedding anniversary. So that was a, a real blessing. So there's even a side benefit to witnessing at times that, uh, <laughs> that you may not know of. Well, Mike Donnelly told me that you guys are computer, uh, not computer, that you guys are creation savvy, that you have the basics of creation down, and that I don't need to rehash and replow all those basics. So this message this morning should lead us to worship. The one at Sunday school will advance your thinking and how creatures are created and how they, how they fit into all different kinds of niches and how they were fruitful, multiplied, and filled the earth. However, if I were to ask you, why is the doctrine of creation so important? Why is it so important? There's one fact that I would really like to have you solidify in your minds. And that is found actually in the book of Isaiah. So if you would open with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. I promise I will get to this, these slides here in just a moment. 
Isaiah chapter 40. It's a whole chapter exalts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in this as our great creator. And we could actually read the whole chapter, but if you open up to Isaiah chapter 40, let's begin here at verse 25. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. The Lord is going to ask a rhetorical question. That means... He's going to ask a question, but the answer is obvious. It's so obvious you don't even have to answer it. And the Lord asks this question. Who then, to whom then, to whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? Asks the Holy One. That's a rhetorical question. There is no one equal to him. And he wants them to know it. No idol, nothing is going to be equal to him. And not only that, he wants them to know that they have the true and living God. That there is no one equal to him and that they are serving the true and living God. So he begins by asking this rhetorical question, who is equal to me? Obviously, no one. And to make sure that they know that no one is equal to him, he says, lift up your eyes on high This is to look at the the stars at night or the sky. And behold, who has created these things that brings out their host by number? Do you recognize that? The Lord has numbered every star. Billions and billions and billions of stars. He has them all numbered. And not only does he have them numbered, he says this, who calls them all by names. He has all the stars numbered. He has all of the stars named. In a few weeks, you're going to be hearing ads on the radio where some guy can name a star after his wife or his girlfriend and give that to her for Christmas. Bad idea. If you give that to your wife, you'll be seeing stars. So um, that's uh, besides, you're not going to get the right name anyway. The Lord has them all numbered. He has them all named. He, he says, by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power and not one of them fails. Why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord and my judgment is passed over from my God, meaning nobody hides from him. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Everything is naked and open to him with whom we have to do. And then he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary, and there is no searching of his understanding. Meaning it is so vast, so powerful, so great, that nobody can even begin to comprehend it. And this is why the doctrine of creation is so important. It's important for the foundation of marriage. It's important for morality. It's important for all of those things. But fundamentally, first and most, for us as theists, the doctrine of creation undergirds the doctrine of God. Who is God? The Bible answers that God is the creator. In fact, it doesn't even begin by saying God is the creator. It says the creator of all things is God. That's who God is 
by definition. He is the creator of all things. So the very first foundation under any doctrine of God, of who God is, you write first, number one, God is the creator. And that gives you this position of status and rank that God is referring to in Isaiah chapter 40. It's a, it's a position that greatly exceeds the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It exceeds the Secretary of Defense. It exceeds the President of the United States. It is up there as a high rank of which none is higher, and that rank is God. Everything owes their existence to Him. Everything is dependent upon Him. He gives and He takes sovereignly and perfectly because He is God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the doctrine of creation is far from being a side issue and it's even far more important than undergirding all of morality. We are theists. We believe in a true and living and supernatural God who can do the supernatural quite naturally to Him. That is who we believe in. We believe in a God who is going to do everything important in our lives supernaturally. He is going to cause you to be born again supernaturally. You are going to die and he's going to raise you from the dead someday supernaturally. We believe in a God who can do everything supernaturally and everything important to us is supernatural. So the doctrine of creation is very important because it undergirds this very thought of who the doctrine of God is. And do you know who recognizes how important this is? The atheists do. The atheists do. And it's because the atheists do. That is why they attack the doctrine of creation so vehemently. Because creation and God are inextricably linked together. So when we as Christians, maybe not this church... But we as Christians in general, when we minimize, run away from, marginalize the doctrine of creation, it's as if we take a big knife and we stick it in our own belly and we commit spiritual suicide. Because it always goes towards atheism when this doctrine is minimized. And you may not see it in your life or we may not see it in our generation, but we will see it in our kids' generation. So the doctrine of creation is important and will always be important because it undergirds the doctrine of God. But this passage here in Isaiah chapter 40 is talking about his greatness, his glory. And that's what these slides are going to talk about. God's greatness, his glory, who he is. And so please just concentrate on these slides for just a moment because this is the first hypothesis. This is the most important one, that worship should be the normal response to science. Now, we generally think that worship should be the normal response to great preaching and things like that, but it is the response to science, and I know it's true because we have this verse. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and marvelous are your works. And we have all said that. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and we're going to talk about something on your human body today. But the whole verse says, I will praise you. I will praise you 
For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is a praise as you were just singing in these songs. A praise that grips your heart, grips your soul. And it should grip your soul. Because he says, my soul knows this greatly. My soul knows this greatly. So I'm going to just talk about science here for the next few minutes. But it should lead you to want to say, praise the Lord at the time I finish with the science. And this is totally in contrast with what you're going to find in the secular world, in the secular scientific world, because we're going to look at several scientific papers here, and this is a scientific paper. Intelligent design evidence unproven by real science, and I have highlighted the first sentence of this scientific paper. It says, The human body is indeed one of the most mysterious and best put together constructs in all the world. Stop right there. The scripture says that God's design are clearly seen by everybody. And the author of this paper clearly sees it. He says it's one of the best put together. It's one of the best constructs in all the world. This human body is phenomenal. And then the next word is what? But. But. You know, there's something about that word, but, that means take everything I just said and disregard it totally. And a lot of times, bad things don't follow a but. And this is one of them, but. But, it's amazing complexity and functions must not lead people to believe that it is the work of a higher power. Now, why is that even in a scientific paper at all? What business does it have being there? It has a business there because the author of that paper has an agenda. And the agenda is not just to advance science. His agenda is to get young people to disbelieve what they clearly see with their own eyes, which is the design all around them. To get them to disbelieve that. And therefore, we today are going to emphasize that your body is absolutely incredible in its capabilities. You know, a lot of times people think animals are really good physically and humans are really good intellectually, but no, no, no. The Lord made human beings both good intellectually and physically. And capabilities, magnitude and speed, and he does all of this, not just so that we can see how really good we are physically, but how really good he is as a designer how really good he is as a maker, that we see that the Lord Jesus Christ as our great creator and our redeemer is incredible. Which is in contrast to what you will find if you turn on the television and you're probably your favorite station of all, PBS. And at two times a year they run this special, Nova, Becoming Human. Becoming Human. And they say, how to become human in six million simple steps. How to become human in six million simple steps. And in their worldview, everything is simple because simple changes made to simple things sound believable. But nothing in biology is really simple. And then they give us these steps. One, get out of tree. Two, grow big brain. Three, flee animals. What could be simpler? And young people read that and they say, well, that's how you become human in, in these steps. But I, I tell you, none of those would even be simple, even, even if the whole story of evolution were true. And it's not. To get out of trees, to stand upright and be like I am, not tip over, have a center of gravity way up here and be able to balance on basically two legs, that would be, that's, that's hard to do. Just 
researchers try to get robots to do it and they struggle to do it. Number two, people have been struggling with that for a long time. And it's, and it's just, these are not simple tasks. Not simple tasks at all. See how they, some ape-like ancestor, became us. Therefore, we are becoming human. Nothing could be further from the truth. The scriptures never ever tell us that we are ever becoming human, that we were human. And you'll see there on the slide this picture from a, met, from a biology textbook of these similarities of the bones. And you know, because we have similar bones, that means we, we came from a common ancestor. The trouble is, the people who wrote that book, they can't even tell you where bones came from. They can't tell you the information to make a bone. Where did all the information come to make a bone? There's far, far more information to make a bone than there is in this entire building. There's more information to get the similarities of the bones. There's more information to get the dissimilarities in the bones. Where did all of that information come from? And not only that, there are some great dissimilarities between the human hand and those of the animals. Because relative to animals, what humans do with their hands is clearly distinct and clearly unique. Clearly unique. And it's not just the fact that we have such incredible thing with our hands. We have so much brain power, not intellectual power, but just brain power dedicated to moving our hands that animals can never do it. So if, let me see, where's the closest state with a professional baseball team? Um, Washington, D.C. Do they have a professional baseball team in D.C.? I mean, do they have a professional baseball team? I mean, uh, uh, oh, okay, I guess, uh, they, I guess they're, they're a baseball team on that. So one of those professional pitchers is throwing a fastball about how fast? 100 miles an hour, 80, 90 miles an hour. It's fast. It's really fast. If you could take the arm from that professional baseball player, somehow surgically detach it, and go over and attach it to a chimpanzee and hook it all up, even though it had the arm of a Baltimore Oriole on it. It could not throw a 90-mile-per-hour fastball because its brain cannot control the arms, the wrists, and the fingers like a human brain can control all of it. You need everything working together in an integrated fashion. You need all of these muscles in your hands. And this is, this is what your hand looks like if your skin is off of it. So if you're a motorcycle rider and you don't wear your gloves and you spin out, you'll come to the emergency room with a hand that looks like that. And the medical students will get a first-hand lesson in anatomy. Now, all of those muscles, this is, this is what's incredible. They begin when you're a tiny little embryo and a little bit of muscle tissue will migrate to your forearm and it will subdivide into 17 different muscles. 17 different muscles that are going to control your wrist and your fingers. And then an, another little bit of tissue will go up to your hand and it's going to subdivide into 21 different muscles. And you're going to have seven muscles in your forearm and your hand dedicated to just moving your index finger. Five muscles to your thumb, and even that little pinky finger right down there, sure, some of you are moving your fingers. This is, you can use your hand as an object lesson. Three finger, three muscles, just to this tiny little in pinky finger. And then look at the tendons. Look how they go to the very tips of the fingers, 
those go all the way up to a tip. Every one of them has a tendon to it. And some people have so much control, they can actually bend just the tips of their fingers and hold the rest of their fingers straight and bend them all in. I can't do it. I'm not a mutant. But some people can actually <laughs> do that right there. And then you have a muscle to the middle bone of your fingers. And look, I'll show over here. This tendon splits right in two so the muscle the tendon to the tip can go there. I'm talking about this tendon right here. Boom, splits in two, and a tendon shoots right through it. Just incredible design, even at the anatomical level. And it gives us incredible abilities, and the main one we do is to grip. Now, the average guy can grip 100 to 150 pounds of force. That is a very respectable grip. Some of us do a lot more than that, but the average guy does about 150 pounds of force. And as I'm talking here, I'm holding up a laser pointer and a clicker, and I'm not even thinking about it, but every one of these wants to twist, turn, and fall on all multiple axes. It wants to do that, and subconsciously, my brain is controlling my fingers so not only do I not let these fall, but I actually manipulate them, find them, and hold them all the time. Now, in order to grip, you have to pinch things together. And your hand is an incredible pinching machine. You can actually take your fingers, pinch them together like this, but you can pinch your thumb to any one of your fingers. You can grip things by pinching them between your fingers. You can pinch things between your fingers and your palm, between your thumb and your palm, between your thumb and your fingers. You have a huge variety of ways in which you can oppose things and pinch them together, giving you abilities to reach down, grab a paint rag, grab a paintbrush, grab the paint can with one hand, using it on all the fingers. I see women leaving the grocery store with bags clinging to every one of their fingers on that, and they're doing this. And subconsciously, and then you could reach down, and you have so much control, you could pick up a sledgehammer, and pluck up a potato chip at the same time. Wow, just phenomenal abilities in your hands. And most of us could set those things down, switch them in our hands, pick them up and move them, and your brain is controlling all of this subconsciously. Not only do we have a power grip, we have what humans really excel at is a micro grip between your index finger and your thumb. So if you go to an eye surgeon and they operate on your eye, they take out a cataract and they stitch your cornea back together with suture finer than a human hair. They're using the micro grip, which humans really, really excel at. And you think it's your index finger, but it's really your thumb. It's your thumb which is giving you this incredible micro grip because there is a muscle in your forearm called your flexor pollicis longus, the flexor of the tip of your thumb. And the muscle has so much brain power dedicated to it that your brain can activate one single muscle fiber at a time to move just the very tip of your thumb so that the tip will move with just seven one-hundredths of an ounce of force, if need be. And what's incredible about this is that chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, they don't even have this muscle in their body. Humans have this muscle giving us incredible capacity. So you may look at a chimp's hand and it looks kind of superficially like our hands. You have to go, go much deeper to really investigate the capacity of what you can do with your hands. And you can pinch things and you can move your fingers and really find, 
find ways there. How do you constantly move your fingers in such a controlled fashion? Well, you'll see the tendons are attached to each of those fingers. The tendons don't just move your fingers. The tendons are actually acting like little sensors. And they're constantly detecting any stresses and forces being applied against the tip of your fingers. And it's not your brain and your nervous system, which is the first line of evaluation of those forces. It's actually the muscles themselves. And the muscles are able to go through an incredible amount of body logic, which are actually mathematical calculations that are being done by the muscle fibers themselves. And they turn switches on and off, switches on and off very, very rapidly, enabling you to move your fingers in very fine ways so that you can use your hands like hydraulic rams and crush things. Or you can use them like springs. So if you jump and you grab onto something, your fingers can act like springs. Or if you hit something hard with a hammer and the vibration goes up the handle into your arm, these muscles turn these switches on and off very, very rapidly in order to dampen the vibration and give you fine finger movements. And they're doing it because they are actually able to perform mathematical calculations. Or if we reach towards a coffee mug and you want to pick it up without tipping it over, which most of us can do. Some people struggle with that. But most of us can do that. Do you realize you have to execute different programs You have to move towards it. You have to stop. You have to pinch. And you have to pick. You don't do all of those at the same time. And your brain has a program for movement, pitch, and pick. And so that when we reach down, we can pick it up very, very slowly. And your brain will drop one program and load the other program. Drop one program and load the other program in 60 milliseconds. This is a program far, far, far more complex than Windows. 60 milliseconds is one-sixth of the time it takes you to blink your eye. And it drops one program and loads the other just like that. Don't you wish your computer could function something along those lines? And it controls your fingers so incredible that you could pick up an egg, squeeze it with 10 to 15 pounds of force with just your fingertips, and the moment that you feel that shell start to crack... You can stop your finger movements, which is in the thickness of an eggshell, one one hundredth of an inch. And by the time you sense it and you stop and you move, it's as fast as your fingers, muscles, and brain can perform. In other words, it's a totally optimized system in terms of performance. Now, everything that I just told you is operated by little machines, little cellular machines inside your body. How did those come into existence? I argue that they were made by a great creator, a creator with an infinite intelligence. But this paper, this scientific paper, published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, is going to tell you a different story. When was the last time you read a scientific paper in church? Maybe this might be the first. This might be first. Well, we're going to read through some excerpts of this because I want you. I want you to have read a scientific paper 
And I want you to have read with your own eyes the explanation given in a scientific paper for how these machines came into existence. This says this, quote, The analysis of protein transport provides a blueprint for the evolution of cellular machinery in general. They say, we, we proposed that what? Simple, of course, simple. Simple core machines were established. Additional modules, wait a second here, good scientific thinkers in church. They proposed that simple core machines were what? Established. Now think about that scientifically. What does that mean? Simple core machines were established. Wait, does that explain anything? They're established. I mean, the scientific person would say, how were they established? How were they established? Isn't that what I really want to know? How were they established? You can't just say they're established. You know what that's like saying? That's like saying, voila, or abracadabra. Abracadabra. You know, they're, they're just established. That's not explaining anything. So they're established. And then additional modules would have been added. Wait a second here. We have what? Additional modules. The scientific person is going to ask, where did the additional modules come from? How were they established and where did they come from? Additional modules would have been added to the core machines to enhance their function. Well, this is where they came from. The pieces were involved in some other, different function. They were recruited and acquired a new function. Wait a second here. They're involved in some other function and they got what? Recruited? Recruited? Did they go down to the, you know, recruiter? How did they, they got recruited and acquired a new function on that? This agrees with Jacob's proposition of evolution as a tinkerer building new machines from salvage part. The paper continues. The necessary pieces for one particular cellular machine were lying around long ago. Wow. Lying around. Lying around. They, they, it was what? It was simply, simply a matter of time before they came together. Before they came together into a more complex entity. Do you know what, these, these are all magical words. Can you see that? This is all magical words. Oh, oops, oops, sorry. Michael Gray, cell biologist at Dalhousie states, you look at cellular machines and you say, why on earth would biology do anything like this? It's too bizarre. But when you think about it in a neutral evolutionary fashion in which these machineries, here's another magical word, emerge before there's a need for them, then it makes sense. Wow. You know, I, I didn't put this here to totally laugh at the authors of this paper, but I wanted you to read with for your own eyes and not have me tell you. I wanted you to read from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States the best and most current explanation out there for how everything I'm telling you came into existence. So brothers and sisters, don't worry. 
that someone out there has some science to overturn your faith. This is as really as good as it gets. Oh, oh, I have a book out there. Just here's the commercial. This is going to describe everything I'm talking about on our hand. If you would like to learn more about it, and this one will help you to explain it to your friends if you're interested in this. If this is the things I'm talking about are interesting to you and you'd like to learn about them, these will help you. Okay, now let's talk about speed. Fingers that can move really, really fast on that. Now, fingers move incredibly fast, much faster than a half a second for most performances. And a half a second in biological time is really a long time. A half a second is how long it would have taken this forklift driver to hit the brakes when he realized there was not a truck at the loading dock to get his bomb. Right there. A half a second is how long would it have taken this gal to hit her brakes when she recognized there's an easier way to get on this boat. And a half a second is how long would it have taken this driver to recognize this isn't the shortcut to the lake that he was after. And if you look really, really close, you'll see the driver is still in the cab of the truck and the guy over here wants to unhitch the boat. So um, it's... A half a second is a long time. Well, how do you get your fingers to move fast? Well, typists move really, really fast. And these young men in the Great Depression were being retrained to be typists. Well, your brain is going to put together a forward plan in which it is going to plan in advance before you ever move your fingers. Speed, direction, pressure, location, all of those variables far before you ever move your fingers in advance. And it is going to become the basis for skilled learning. Skilled learning. So that your fingers can move incredibly fast. In fact, this gal, who could be you, skilled skilled typists visually process with their peripheral vision at least eight characters in advance of where they're going to type. Their peripheral vision sees it and their brain is planning eight characters in advance. The forward plan is put together three characters in advance before you even know where your fingers are. The time between between keystrokes can be as little as 60 milliseconds. And believe it or not, the fastest keystrokes are between fingers of the opposite hand. And this forward planning ability gave the world's fastest typist the ability to type at a sustained rate of 160 words per minute for 60 minutes straight, reaching speeds of over 200 words per minute, and her brain is updating the plan with every single keystroke. Now that is some incredible computing power and some incredible typing power. And skilled pianists also move their fingers very, very quickly, and they play 20 to 30 successive notes a second as fast as 40 milliseconds apart, And the brain updates the plan after every single keystroke. And as far as we know, there is no limit to the number of plans that the human brain can store. No limit. Now this is an incredible performance. So the pianist can play Amazing Grace in a slow, expressive way or a jazzy way or all those things and change them on the spot. Just an incredible performance. So human hands are not like animal hands. Human hands excel in precision and speed. They enable you to express yourself, creativity. I've been in churches where they have people sign my entire talk with sign language. And they're talking with their fingers. And it's like poetry in motion as you watch them talk and express themselves with nothing more than their hands. 
And if you want to do something, you want to execute your will, there's a 90% probability that this hand is going to be involved in executing your will. And as you can see on the pictures, these are things that only human beings do with their hands. Now, evolutionists can't tell you how hands evolved, but they think they can tell us why hands evolved. In this paper, human hands evolved for fighting, studies suggest, and it begins with this. Human hands have evolved their unique shape in order to better punch the living daylights out of competitors, a new study suggests. The ability to brutally club opponents. Really? The fact that I can curl my fingers up like this, put my thumb over the end, bend it in just the right position. I I evolved this to beat the living daylights out of a competitor? Really? May I suggest the Bible gives us a far better explanation for your hands. Your hands were made to connect you to the world around you in a loving way. They connect you to cherish things and important things like lunch (laughs) or really cherish things like the Word of God. Your hands reach out and they connect you across generations to other people. And you know the man who's picking up the wife of his hand there in their older years, he doesn't care what her hand looks like. He cares who her hand is connected to. And that's why he picks up that hand and loves that hand. Your hands, as you look at yourself in the mirror and you touch your body with your hands, they connect the outer material you to the real inner you, the real spiritual you. They connect you that way. You can reach up and your hands connect you to the Lord. In many places, people lift their hands. Other places, they they have an expression of their devotion to the Lord by reaching out. Your hands connect you to the rest of the world in ways which we don't even understand. And it begins even before we're born. And here's a picture of an of a operation of a tiny little baby boy who had a spinal cord defect. And this is his mother's womb. This is her uterus right there. And the surgeon was able to make a tiny little incision operate on his back, and towards the end of the surgery, this little baby boy reached his hand out of the incision and grabbed the finger of the surgeon who was operating on him. Wow, this is connecting power, and it is a gift from the Lord, a real gift from the Lord, and worship should be the normal response to science. And we did nothing but just talk about your hand and the great creator who made this hand. How many of you feel like saying, praise the Lord? We have a great creator. Amen. Thank you so much.